Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 64. All right, so the Rip Curl Newcastle Cup presented by Corona finished with a bang. Reigning four-time world champion, Carissa Moore was ascendant and unstoppable with a win over rookie Isabella Nichols in the final, who had an impressive showing of her own. On the men's side, local rookie Morgan Sibilich was electric in front of the hometown crowd, slaying his way to equal third. And reigning men's world champion Italo Ferreira edged out compatriot Gabriel Medina to clinch the number one spot on the WSL rankings heading into Nairobi this coming week. My fantasy team got completely annihilated in Newcastle, but congratulations to Lucas Alegre from the Lineup Podcast Fantasy League for taking the win at CT stop number two, while also cementing themselves at the top of the overall rankings for our league heading into the upcoming Rip Curl Narrabeen Classic presented by Corona. You can get your Narrabeen teams set at worldsurfleague.com backslash fantasy. All right, episode 64. Today's guest is someone who is an institution unto himself in the esteemed Narrabeen surfing community. A world champion at the tender age of 21, he would scalp another world title before he was finished with his 15 years at the elite championship tour level. A tenure that bore him the moniker, the Iceman, and saw him final at Bells Beach an incredible five times, winning in both 1988 and 1993. We were fortunate to speak with him about where surfing's been, where it is, and where it's going. Please enjoy the lineup's conversation with Nairbeen's Damien Hardman. The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be a world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. Let's go. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's up here, boxing. All right, we have two-time world champion and Nairbean icon Damien Hardman on today's episode of The Lineup. Duma, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. Good to be here. Finally. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> for sure. How are you doing today? Uh, where are you today and, and who are you hanging with? Um, I'm just at home. Um, it's a Saturday here. The Newcastle event just finished, so I watched a bit of that. I uh, had a surf this morning. The waves are actually really good today at Narrabeen sort of four to six foot, solid six foot, south swell, probably one of the better surfs I've had in the last six months, actually. So good start to the day. And then come back and watch the uh, the finals of the men's and women's at Newcastle. And that was pretty epic too. Yeah, that was excellent. We're going to get to that in a second. But as a two-time world champion, you've undoubtedly been on our tier one shortlist for lineup guests. But in the process of scheduling you for today, um, another topic emerged in Early March, the Girls Can't Surf documentary was released in Australia, and this documentary chronicled the journey and challenges of professional women surfing from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the modern era. And the film depicts the world's best female surfers struggling to attain quality conditions to compete in, financial support from the surfing industry, and general acceptance from the surfing world. And you yourself are depicted as one of the film's antagonists, in a way, with sound bites from that era, including, quote, I think they, the women, just need to look like women, look feminine, look attractive, dress well, as well as 
I don't want to go and say something that puts shit on them. I think there are some really good women surfers, but they'll never get close to the men. Now, this isn't a part of the story that we would intentionally ignore during our conversation with you. So we thought it'd be the right place to start. So have you seen the Girls Can't Surf documentary yet? I have. Um, I have seen it. I thought it was a really good movie, you know, really entertaining. I thought it was a good depiction of the journey that the girls have had. Um, I pretty much lived that that journey with them. So uh, it was pretty much all the girls from my era. Unfortunately, I was one of the antagonists, as you said, um, which to me was a little bit disappointing in the way I was portrayed. But, you know, I, I own the comments I, I said in the movie. You know, I think if you look at them, if, well, I know what they, when they were said and what context that they were set in. So I'm sort of comfortable with that. But having said that, I definitely don't hold the same views that I, that I held 30 years ago. You know, I think 30 years ago, the world was a different place. The sport was in a different place. It was a younger sport. And, you know, saying that the girls will never be as good as the guys, you know, at that point, there was such a big difference between where the guys were and where the girls were. I honestly believe that at the time. You know, and I think with the benefit of hindsight and looking back and looking where the sports come from, you know, I can see a day where, you know, the girls, every generation of girl or, or the girls have just got better and better and better. So, you know, pretty much started with Lisa and Wendy Botha, Lisa Anderson, um, right through to Steph, Carissa, Tyler, and they're arguably as good as the guys now. You know, I know there's a lot of guys that will still disagree with that, but for me, I enjoy watching the girls as much as the guys, and it's amazing where it was and where it's come to. You know, it sounds like almost agnostic of, of the film coming out, your opinions changed over time between when you made them in the film and now, um, largely as a result of the performances of, of the women you just outlined. Do you, do you still talk to some of the women depicted in the film? You know, um, Pam Burridge, uh, Lisa Anderson, Wendy Boita, uh, Pauline Menser. Do you, do you keep up with them at all? Yeah, well, unfortunately, we, you know, we basically lived out of each other's suitcases and pockets and aeroplanes for, for 16, 17 years. Um, but th the funny thing is when you do finish competing, you lose touch with people. But I know, you know, I've I see Lane quite a lot. I've run into Pauline. I've worked with Jody Cooper. Um, at events, and we get on really well. Um, I think it's one of those things, I think seeing that movie, you know, I guess it brought to my attention how bad their struggles were. You know, I think at the time, no one really knew how tough they were doing it. Uh, having said that, you know, I think back in those days, surfing was a young, young sport, and there wasn't too many people who were making good money. It was the top probably four guys and probably the top two women, and then everyone else was struggling. So it was... The girls, the guys did it tough. The girls, the girls did it tougher. So um, yeah, but I, I, to answer your question, I, I do try and keep in touch with them, but we don't see each other that often. You know, I'm I'm interested in the way that you broke down, you know, your response to the film and your depiction in it. And and while you were one of the antagonists in the film, you certainly weren't the only one. And and the ones that were depicted in the film probably weren't the only ones around at the time, but you're taking responsibility both for your words and actions, but also acknowledging the fact that you were a product of your environment, both the time and the place. And so switching gears a little bit, I, I do want to wind the clock back a little bit to that environment you grew up in, in Narrabeen, because the championship tour is coming there. 
this week that we're we're releasing this episode. For yeah. someone who's never been there, um, how would you describe Narrabeen to them? Well, I think for someone that's never surfed Narrabeen, like obviously the waves are really good. It's probably the most consistent wave in Sydney. Um, it's the one place where if everywhere else is flat, you can go there and there's still surf. But it is a, probably an intimidating place for a lot of people. It's got a reputation of a lot of, I guess, hardcore locals who protect their wave. Um, I wouldn't say it's a violent place by any means, but there's definitely a lot of guys there who are really protective of their wave. You know, I guess product of my environment, you know, it was a pretty tough place to grow up, but it was a good place in that it was a real leveler. You know, if you were doing well in any, at any time in surfing, those guys were the ones who brought you down a couple of peaks. Um, you know, growing up with Cole Smith, Simon Anderson, Mark Warren, Terry Fitzgerald, it's a pretty serious pecking order. So to, to get a place in the lineup is pretty tough. Uh, it sounds like I might have dodged a bullet because I lived on Goodwin Street when I was a little kid for a couple <laughs> of years. I could I could have come up and cut my teeth under you at the time. It would have been pretty good. You sure? How old were you then? Uh, you should have. I would have been two to four. So just about, yeah, paddle out the back, four, four years old. No worries. No, Kelly, yeah, you missed by that much. I did, yeah, for sure. Well, we have Championship Tour Surfing returning in Australia. We're actually recording minutes after the finals happened in Newcastle. Did you take much of the Newcastle event in? And, and if so, what were your biggest impressions, both on, on the men's and women's side? Well, I, I went up there for a couple of days, watched the competition, um, the smaller days. I watched all of today. Um, I think in the pretty much the year that they've had off, it looks like the performance levels like gone to another level. You know, I think the the girls and the guys are you know they they're just sending it. You know, I think the move Carissa did yesterday was pretty much groundbreaking in girls surfing. I think it was the the, the craziest move I've seen, especially in competition. Um, so I think the guys today, you know, the 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 left that Medina got in the uh, the semi final, that was crazy. You know, that maneuver he did was something we dreamt about in our generation. And the funny thing about Merriweather is it's a right. So it's bizarre that those guys find lefts and turn them into 9.5s. It's, um, but yeah, the, I, I think overall the surfing level was had, had gone up a notch. I'd have to agree with you. And outside of the surfers you listed, you know, your Italos and your, your Gabriels and your Carissas, switching gears to the wave setup and just the community in Narrabeen this week, do you anticipate anyone else in either men's or women's field to, to really shine out at Narrabeen? You know, I reckon Narrabeen's going to suit the, the same surfers that do well at trestles because Narrabeen is basically, it's, it's pretty moody. It does change around quite a bit. Um, so you, at Narrabeen, you've got a real variety of conditions. You can have long barreling left, so you can have small little rights running into the, the mouth of the lake. So it's really tidal. So I think it'll... Really depends on how the conditions are, but I reckon the guys that normally do well at trestles, um, I'd say Julian Wilson, Jordy, Smith, I think the Brazilians, Idlo, Felipe, Gabriel, I think they're going to be the guys that are going to stand out. And I think in the girls' division, I think Tyler's, it'll suit Tyler. She's got power and Narabeen's got power. It's got push even when it's small. Um, I think a dark horse, I'd say Isabella Nichols, who did really well today, I think it's going to suit her. But I think in the girls' division, you know, Steph and, and Carissa, it's hard to go past those, those girls as well. 
And a couple of days ago, we we got word that Mick Fanning, three time world champion, is uh, dusted off his contest jersey. He's 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 shedded the dad weight and 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 gotten fighting fit, and he's taken the wild card for for Narabeen. What do you think of Mick's chances against the current top thirty four? Look, I saw Mick surfing up on the Gold Coast uh, about three weeks ago in the Kira Teams contest, and I was surprised how how fit and how in tune he looked. He was ripping. But what I, I know from experience, when you actually come back, you realise that while you're still surfing as well as you ever have, the guys that you're competing against always sort of go up a little bit. They, they sort of go to the next level. So I think, I think Mick's going to do really well. I think they're all going to be fearful of Mick. I think he's a real cat amongst the pigeons um, and he's going to be surfing against the top guys early. So I think he's got nothing to lose. I think his attitude's good. So I think he's... He's a guy that's going to do pretty well. But, you know, I think you look at Italo's performance today and Gabe's, you know, is he going to be surfing as quick as them? Maybe not, but he's definitely going to be as smart as them. He's a wily competitor, so I think his chances are good. And if it's a little bit bigger and it's got push, um, Narrowbean can be more of an – it suits guys that are on a rail, so guys mm-hmm. with a little bit of power. So I think, think it will suit Mick if it's like that. Mick to me strikes me as one of those guys that that maybe more so than than you know former surfers that come back and have a taste of it through uh, wild cards or, or QS campaigns. He seems to be a lot more eyes open about the talent level that's on tour these days. His own talent level, which I would argue is is maybe as high as it's ever been when he's when he's as fit as he is right now, but also just being very in tune with what his strengths are and honest with himself about what they aren't. Whereas maybe in the past, you've seen people that kind of have the delusion of, well, no, I'm still good enough to do this. I'm going to go toe to toe with someone. But as you said, the the approach to wave riding has shifted so much since Mick's title years as well, even with what we saw in Newcastle. Yeah, well, like you said, Mick's in tune. You know, he knows what's going on. He's no dummy. So I actually don't think Mick would have taken the wild card if he doesn't think he can win the event. Um, and he's he's one of the hungriest competitors I've ever seen. Um, he's smart. And I think he's going to do pretty well. I, I totally agree with him getting a wild card. I think it's great for the sport. You know, I think it's good that I think it's good that those champions are still in touch with the sport, and they, after a couple of years off, they can still come back and cut it with the young guys. So I think, um, in terms of creating interest, it's going to be great. It's going to be good to see. You know, it's just another another bit of the puzzle that's going to keep everyone interested. I'm totally with you. I want to bring it back to to the the genesis of the Iceman and and your pre pre competitive era. Where did where were you born? What was your family like? And and how did you get started in surfing, Duma? Well, I grew up in grew up in Narrabeen. Started surfing when I was probably about eight years old. Uh, the sur- first board I ever got, I found at the local rubbish dump, which is uh, was sort of down the back of my house, about five hundred meters away. Um, and that was just a board I found at the tip and my next door neighbor surfed. He took me to the beach, got me into it. Um, my parents weren't surfers. I was the only surfer in our family. Um, I was the oldest of five kids and the rest of my family, no one ever, my brother surfed for a little while, but the rest of the family, none of them ever surfed. Um, my dad was a, a clubby, um, so he was always at the beach. We spent all our summers at the beach, but pretty much I was up one end with the surfers and my brothers and sisters were down the other end with the with the clubbies, you know, doing nippers and stuff like that. So I was sort of an alien. And I guess when I first started, my parents thought the surfers were, they were the bad guys, you know, they, they were the guys doing drugs at the other end of the beach and, you know, all the hippies and stuff like that. So 
they looked at surfers as aliens, as a lot of people did. So, um, you know, I sort of broke the mold in our family. <laughs> so this would have been what early to mid seventies, late seventies is is when when you were surfing in there. I mean, it would have been like early seventies. Yeah, I remember yep. the first Coke classics and the first surfabouts when they held them at Narrabeen. I was like, I still can't believe I was actually down there that young watching them. I was. I, I must have been at school or it must have been school holidays, but I was there watching them when I was that young. So I was just like every other little kid at every beach that's just, you know, you've got your heroes and you're obsessed with surfing and you're obsessed with the lifestyle. Um, you know, I remember when I was, I think I was eight years old, I've actually got a photo of it. Um, went down, the, went, I lived up the road at Warriwood, which is about, you know, 500 metres from North Narrabeen. And me and my friend, we rode on our push bikes down to Narrabeen because he was buying a new vest. And it was a secondhand vest from a guy he knew who was a little bit older. And he bought the vest for 50 cents. So it was an old, an old, I think it was an old O'Neill vest and it had been stitched together with fishing line. But when we went to buy that vest, the funny thing was they were doing a photo shoot with Rory Russell and Jerry Lopez. And so I ended up doing a golden breed ad with, um, with Rory Russell and Jerry Lopez that day. Um, and with, I think it was about six of us that did it. We got paid the grand sum of $2 between all of us to do it. And that got us a can of Coke and a packet of Twisties. And um, <laughs> yeah, so it was, it's, yeah, so from a young age, I was sort of, that's, that was what I was doing, surfing every day. I was talking to, to Nick Carroll about this a couple of weeks ago and, and just about how things have changed a little bit in that the, the internet and the information age has really leveled out everyone's access to world-class surfing in the sense of, you know, you can live anywhere and, and watch, you know, uh, a Steph Gilmore surf online or, or an Italo Ferreira compete online, or you can get an Instagram clip or whatever it is, but that still doesn't, doesn't match the same feeling you get when the best surfers in the world come to your beach. You know, and, and you're like, you're just shocked and you're like, wow, this is and 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 before the Internet, that was the only exposure people had to world class surfing. Well, it was basically magazines, you know, every everything was so delayed. And you know what it's like when you're back before the Internet and phones, mobile phones. I guess you waited months to find out what was going on in the surfing world. You know, you waited every month for that magazine to come out and you rush to the news agent, get the magazine and you'd see what was going on. But the funny thing was, you know, I, I guess as stories changed from person to person, they'd started an event and then by the time we got into print and it was on a, on a newsstand like four, five months later, that story may, have, may not have been exactly what it was. So, sure. um, you know, <laughs> like it is now, like, it's, everything's so immediate, you know. It's like whatever happens right this minute is old news tomorrow. So, um, yeah, the good thing is it gives you the opportunity to, to know what's going on or you think you know what's going going on. But like you said, when you see those guys at your home beach, it's like, that's wow. You know, like me as a competitor, I, you know, I'm a surf fan. I get stoked when I see John John and all those guys surfing at your home beach. You know, they, so imagine what the grummets feel. It's just, it's the biggest thing that happens in, you know, when you're a kid, it's awesome. Yeah, poor. They had poor Luke Egan on the steps all the whole contest at Newcastle, and every time they went to him, he was wiping a tear from his eyes because the CT surfers were competing at his home beach. Yeah, well, that's when you're a kid. That's your dream. You yeah. know, you see those. You used to only ever see those guys in the magazine. Now you see them online, and you see them on Instagram and Facebook, and you know all the different sites. But it is way different when you see them live at your own beach. 
they're so much more, well, it's just more special. The, you know, you, they're real people. You get to see what they're really like and you actually see how good they really are because the internet makes it look good. But in real life, they, I, I think they surf better than what they look oh. online. Hundred percent too. I like what you said too about you know it used to be months before I even found out what happened at a contest with the magazines. I vividly remember the first time the Triple Crown was doing just live scoring. There's no audio, no video. It was just the the old Monozool like scoring system, Beach Bite, and you just see the scores drop. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to class today. Like, and my friends were like, What do you mean? I'm like, I'm watching the scores come in. I'm not gonna have to wait. This is like my mind was blown. <laughs> the, yeah, like, the comp's on. What are you thinking? I'm just watching yeah, these little these little numbers drop. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing where it's come from, you know. And yeah. it, it's, but I guess it's the it's the, basically the same sport, you know. In a, in a lot of ways, it hasn't really changed. You know, it's the same, you know, everyone's out there competing, doing the same thing, trying to get two waves, trying to surf them as well as they can. But, you know, that's really the only, one of the few things that hasn't changed. You know, how you see it, you perceive it, and that's all different. So how did you start competing in surfing? And, and was this in the same time frame? Like what age were you when you started competing? Uh, I probably, I, the first comp I went in was a pro junior. Um, they used to run that at Narrabeen. I think that started in, must have started in maybe 1977. And I was, I think I was 11 and I did a beach entry. The only reason I went in it was because every competitor got a free case of Pepsi. So I was the last heat of the day and they ran out of Pepsi when I got, when I got through my heat. So um, I was pretty bummed. But, you know, that, that's when uh, Joe Engel and Tom Carroll were competing, you know, they were a few years older than me. Um, and when you're like 11 or 12, three years seems like two generations. So, um, you know, to get to see those guys surfing at your home home break then was amazing. But uh, yeah, so I got into it. I surfed in the pro junior. I actually got through my heat, surprised myself, and then just started competing in the local events, the state titles, the Aussie titles. There was a lot more amateur events when I was young. So you had this, your school program, where you'd start your region, then your state, then you'd go to the Australian titles. So I, I did that and that was just like a natural progression, you know, started to do well in those and then went to the World Junior uh, or the, the World Titles in California at Huntington Beach in 84. Um, and I was a junior and I won that. And then pretty much after that, that was the first year I'd had off school. And I figured if I won that, then I'd try and see how I went in the pro tour, give it a couple of years and if it didn't work, then get a real job, but uh, luckily it all worked out. Well, you mentioned being the only surfer in your family, your dad, your dad was a clubby and your brother surfed a little bit, but were they supportive of you it's at, at this age, I guess, as a junior, like pursuing a career as a professional surfer, or were they giving you a little bit of rope to say like, yeah, if you can do it, fine, but if not, you got to get a real job? Yeah, they, wouldn't, they never saw it as a, as a career. Um, I didn't either. I surfed for the love of it. You know, I just surfed because that's what I like doing. And I think I, I never really entertained it as a career. You know, I remember doing work experience at school and I was, the plan was to be a pastry cook. And I was going to do that because pastry cooks worked early in the morning, sort of, and they were finished by 10, 10 or 11. So you had the whole day to surf. So I did that um, at, for work experience at the school, hated it. And then went, shit, that's not going to work out. I better find something else to do. So uh, my parents, I think my dad actually thought, hey, this thing could be all right when I was about 16 and I won $2,000 in one of the Pro-Am events. 
and brought home a two thousand dollar check, and he, he was like, "Wow, that's pretty good. It's more than I earned this week." <laughs> yeah, I never really looked at it as a, as a career. You know, I just surfed because it was something I loved doing. So yeah, one thing led to another, and the rest is history. What What did you hate about your pastry chef apprenticeship? I just remember the guy who was training me used to we he used to make pies. So my job, he'd fill the pies and my job was to put the lid on the pie. I remember he used to hang there with a cigarette hanging out his mouth and it just burned. He never smoked it. But every now and again, this, the, ash, the ash would drop in a pie and I was like, this is not good. Um, and, and, and my job was to actually pick the ash out of the pie after, he, after it had fallen in there. And this was at a really well-known, reputable cake shop that everyone thought the pies were really good. So... Um, that was sort of the end of it for me. Never Secret. ate another pie at that place again. Secret ingredient. The, uh, yeah. There's that. There's. There's. I, I've said this before. I should look up which Malloy brother said this. I'm just going to say it with Chris. Chris Malloy said this, but it was years ago, and they were asking him about like kind of the paradox of being a professional surfer. When you know, they're like, well, how do you justify being a professional surfer to all these other kind of soul surfers out there? And he was like, well. He goes, the way I look at it is uh, you can either, he's like, I just want to go surfing. So he's like, the way I look at it is like, I can go hammer nails to pay for me to go surfing or as a professional surfer, I can go surf to get paid to go surfing. So I'll be a professional surfer, I get to surf more. And I've always thought that was kind of the simplest explanation of being like, why would you be a pro surfer? Well, that was that was actually, so I used to think when I actually started to, surfers and it looked like it was going to turn into a career it was really a means to an end i just figured it was a good way of being able to travel the world and surf good waves so even though a lot of the contests weren't held in good waves we had a lot of contests back then that were, were held in great waves so um to me it was more like a means to an end to do that what you love doing so i think it's a pretty good analogy <laughs> well i want to get into your specific championship tour career but uh, first, we're going to take a quick break to get a word in from our sponsors. We'll be right back. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success 
every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup. All right, so we're back in the mid 80s. You've just won the junior comp in Huntington Beach and you've decided to turn professional. How old are you? Who are your sponsors? And what is your mindset? Are you thinking I'm going to be a world champion or are you just like, I just want to travel the world and surf good waves? Uh, well, I, yeah, like I won the, the amateur, well, the junior amateur world title in Huntington. And I guess my plan was if I did well in that, I was going to give the world tour two years and see how I went. So I pretty much won that halfway through the year. The rest of the year I came home to Australia, just trained and got fit and surfed and competed. And then I basically went on the tour in 1985. Uh, and that was my first year on tour. Uh, I did that with Barton Lynch, took me under his wing. Um, I couldn't, I was only nine, 18, 19 then, so I didn't have a license. Uh, so everywhere we went, you needed a rent a car. So Barton was a little bit older. So he was, uh, he was the driver and I was the passenger. So I thought I'd give it two years on the tour. And, and if all things went well, then obviously I'd, you know, compete as long as I could. Um, so I did, I think I got 16th the first year on tour, uh, or 17th actually, and they used, 16 used to qualify. So I missed out by one spot. Um, and then a couple of people got injured. So I got a couple of sort of e- or equivalent of today's injury wildcards. And then I think I got sixth the second year on tour and then won the world title in the third year on tour. So it was a pretty rapid rise, I guess, um, for the first three years I had on tour. It was sort of one of those things that just happened. I never really, it happened so quick. I never really had time to even think about it. And I look back and go, it all happened so quick, you sort of feel like you, you missed a little bit of it. You know, just, you, I look back and pinch myself going, it was the, you know, the pinnacle of what you wanted to achieve once you put your mind to it, but it was over so quick. And I think when I won my second world title, I definitely enjoyed that way more um, because I, I guess I'd been there and I was a little bit more relaxed in the position I was in and enjoyed it a lot more. Yeah, because what? So, so three years, it's, I mean, I'm just trying, I want to go back to the 87, 88 season because it used to run over the calendar year. When you won your world title, you'd only been on tour for a couple of years. So what, you're 21 when you won your first I was twenty. Title? I was 21, yeah. So I was young and I was a young 21. You know, I was, I, I don't know, I was just, I was, pre- I was pretty quiet as a kid, always kept to myself. Um, so I was, you know, I was pretty much introverted. So I think, um, yeah, I was 21 and it just, it just happened. It was sort of bizarre. I remember that before I actually won the world title in the, the last four events were in Australia. I went to Hawaii, had a really shitty year in Hawaii. Um, we left Hawaii and um, Gary Elkerton was in the lead. Um, and I came home and the guy I was training with a couple of guys, Greg Day, who used to surf on the tour. And he said, look, this may be your only shot to ever win a world title. He said, if you want to win it, you've got to put your ass, head down, ass up and just work your ass off and, and you may have a shot at it. And I just went, yeah, that sounds about right. It could be the only chance I've ever, ever, I've ever got. So I worked really hard. And I reckon in that four months between Hawaii and the events starting in Australia, I honestly believe my surfing improved 
30, 40%. So in that break, I remember coming back and I remember Mike Parsons coming up to me and going, I can't believe how much better you're surfing than you were last year. So it's just, yeah, one of those things that happened quick. Well, and I mean, you're so young. I mean, a, uh, a comparable that a lot of people talked about, even at, in this last Newcastle event, is Morgan Sibillic. You know, like people saying that the year that Morgan qualified, he didn't even make the Meriwether Board Riders team, but actually yeah. having the, the year off because of COVID, he's gotten so much better, but he's so young, you know, so it's, and you were so young too. So it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, you're not even probably fully physically matured yet, right? So like no. every few months, you're just getting that much stronger as a, a human being. Yeah, well, you, you're not mature physically or mentally, probably mentally more than sure. anything. So I think it's, yeah, 21 was pretty young to win a world title. Um, well, and I look, I, I, oh, go on, sorry. It was, a di- it was a different era then. You know, I remember Sean Thompson being on tour and he was 33, I think. And he was the oldest person that had ever been on tour. And he was the oldest guy by like probably four years. You know, probably the average age when you retired was probably between 28 and 30. You know, if you were 30, you were ancient. So everyone started a little bit younger then, I think. You know, you left school and basically if you didn't get, you'd just go on the tour if you were a reasonably good surfer. Um, it used to be cheaper to get on tour. I think the air ticket, you get around the world ticket for like three or four grand and that took you everywhere. I think the, the whole age thing really shifted, you know, and like look at Kelly now, you know, Kelly's what, nearly 50 and he's still right. matching up with the best guys in the world. And, you know, I think I was the oldest guy until when I finished, I was 36 and I was the oldest by like four years. So yeah. I think the whole expectation of when you start and when you finish is all different now. You know, I think, I think you can start younger if you want, but most guys seem like they hit their straps a little bit older now. How, what was, what was the high performance surfing world like in 87, 88? And, and the reason I'm asking is because when someone's so young, typically when someone's so young wins a world title, they are like a, a performance shifting talent. You know, it's Kelly Slater or Gabriel Medina. Did you see yourself that way as a surfer as sort of like, I'm, I'm young, but I'm surfing so much better than everybody and differently than everybody. And I'm actually ushering in kind of a new way of surfing. Is that what happened in, in 87? No, I don't think so. I think sort of, I think mine, Barton's, probably Tom Curran, Potts, our generation, I think it was the way they scored surfing was different. You know, we mm-hmm. came in at a time where priority was just, you know, they just introduced the priority boy. They used to have man-on-man heats. They weren't that old, but they used to score four waves. So it was as much a, a race and about fitness as it was about your actual surfing. You know, you obviously the best surfers were still the ones winning, but you had to be a smart surfer as well. You know, to get four good scoring waves in 25 minutes is hard. You know, it's hard getting two, two waves now. So I think the performance level wasn't as high. as I think every time they dropped a wave, and because it, it went from the best four waves to the best three to the best two, which it is now. Yeah. Every time they did that, the performance inc- it probably got twice as good every time they did it. Right. So I think we were in the early or the late 80s, I think it was a time when it was consolidating and everyone was probably a bit more conservative because you were trying to, it was almost like a mass equation. 
you know, what do I need to score in my best four waves to get through a heat? Whereas now it's not a maths equation. It's basically I've got to get two eight or nine point rides to win a heat. So it's basically it's about performance and it's mm. about delivering the best you can do on those two waves. You can't be conservative. And that's why surfing's where it is now. It's because yeah. it's, um, it's more cutthroat. And I think there's, the emphasis is now on performance, not scores. Right. And there were so many events on tour at that time. I think there are 21 events in the 87, 88 year and 17 in the, in the 1990 year and uh, 91 year, excuse me. Do you think, here's, here's an interesting question. If you took your surfing at the time with your peers on tour at the time and you put them into the modern championship tour, let's say the 2019 season, you, 10 CT events at those venues, top two waves, do you think that you still win your world titles? That's a good question. I've never even thought of that. Um, pro- yeah, I think I definitely would have won the first one. The second one... You know, I think that was the one that came down to the wire in Hawaii when Tom Carroll got the interference. So I think that format probably would have suited Tom a little bit better, especially in, at pipe. You know, Tom's the sort of guy that could have won an event, could have won a heat at pipe with an interference. Mm. So I think overall, it would probably work out in the wash and you'd pretty much get the same results. But you'd obviously have events that would suit everyone differently. So right. the waves that they surf today, you know, like there was no Chopu, um, there was no J-Bay. There was, you know, it definitely wasn't the dream tour. It was, um, we, we turned up on a Tuesday and we started on a Tuesday, finished on a Sunday, and whether it was two foot or 20 feet, you surfed. Didn't matter. And, and that was, you know, going back to the, the girls can't surf movie, that unfortunately we were all there at the same time, all mm. surfing in a five-day window, we all actually surf pretty shitty waves. You know, yeah. there was a few events where they made a conscious decision to put the girls out before the guys when the when the waves were shitty. But overall, oh, we surfed a lot of crappy events. But at the same time, some of those crappy events were the funnest times you ever had in your life because the waves weren't as good. So you made your time there good. I was talking to someone about this recently. I can't remember if it was Pat O'Connell or Ross Williams, but they were they said something similar where they said, "Look, even they said actually the Dream Tour, like like quality high quality waves and a lot of the, of them are a finite resource, you know, like and they said even these Dream Tour events and you'd know this from your days as a, a, a contest director, some of those days when you see the very best waves of the year coming through, some of those heats are just dead because those those days are really lully sometimes. Um, yeah, and that's, that's just right. kind of life on tour. Yeah, it's surfing. You know, you could be you, you could be anywhere. It could be G Land, Fiji. You got a long period swell, and you just have a heat that goes it stops. Yeah, and that's just surfing. That's just part of it. You know, I think when I I was probably getting ready to hang up my boots probably around 80, so probably 97, 98. But the thing that kept me on tour was the, the possibility that Fiji was going to be on next year, the possibility that G-Land was going to be on. So pretty much I hung on the tour for two years longer than I really wanted to just to surf and, or surf a couple of events at Cloudbreak. Like the, the, what those guys get now, it's pretty, it's amazing. Now, that was our dream. That was our dream tour, to be surfing 12, 10, 12 events a year, 
surfing good waves doesn't get any better. You know, what a, what a lifestyle. The, the way you described uh, competitive surfing during your title run years of, um, you know, best four waves, 21 um, event seasons, did you at the time or even looking back, see yourself more as a, 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 a very, very good competitor compared to being a very, very good surfer? Or did you see them as like one of one and the same? Um, I thought they were one and the same. You know, I was, I was well aware that I was an exceptional competitor. You know, for my generation, I think I was, I was as good as anyone at our actual comp- competing. You know, and I think that's why I got the, the nickname Iceman was because I was a good competitor. I'd back myself, I'd wait, I was, I was smart, I knew what I needed to do to win, and more often than not, I did. Um, you know, I, I still felt that I was, uh, I, I still felt that I was surfing really well. I fe- felt like on my day I was surfing as well as anyone. Um, but I was, I was aware of the fact that there was guys that, who I was beating when I was the world champion that I thought were better surfers than me, you know, and I think every generate most people who are realistic understand that, you know, yeah. it's not always the, the very best surfer is the best surfer. And I yeah. think that's why sub- surfing subjective. Even now you watch, you watch it and, and Gabby and, you know, I've got a different opinion than my mate watching it next to me has. <laughs> it's subjective. You know, what I like and what you like are two different things. So, you know, like I think, yeah, everyone likes to watch different stuff. But yeah, I was well aware, well aware that I was a great competitor. You know, it's interesting, right? Because you talked a little bit about the evolution of the sport and you can kind of look back through the last 10 years of rankings on the men's and women's side. And uh, I'm of the opinion that not only were you a great competitor, but a fantastic surfer as well. I've had the privilege of surfing with you a lot and I think you still are. Thanks, but the, obviously there's been years where people are like, that person's a really, that person's a better competitor than they are a surfer and vice versa. That person's a better surfer than they are a competitor. But if you look at the CT rankings over the last decade, there's not a lot of daylight between those things. You know, the best surfers are the best competitors and vice versa. And I wonder if that's a function of what you kind of outlined. Like, look, it's less events. It's the best two waves. These are in premium locations. And, and there's just not a clear distinction where you're like, that person is, is a pure competitor, but maybe not the best surfer. I think they're, they're just, I reckon the guys in the last 10 years are better competitors. You know, they're mm. better surfers and better competitors. And you right. can't be one without the other. And I think the best competitor on the tour is Gabriel Medina. Like mm. he, is, he is the best competitor I've ever seen across any generation. What, like what he did at Pipe the other year when he dropped in on his competitor. Like that is, to me, that, to me that was, he was, I was like, the guy's a freaking genius. No one would have ever thought to even do that. You know, I was renowned as a good competitor. I was ruthless, but I wouldn't have thought of that. Um, <laughs> and that was just one of those spur of the moment things that I reckon wasn't premeditated. He just went, what have I got to do to win this heat? And he did it, you know, and. So I reckon they're I reckon they're one and the same now. I think they're, they're all, I think they're all good surfers. Even the guys sort of at the end of the you know the guys from twenty to thirty, I think the the difference between them and the very best guys is, is marginal. You know, I think they're, it's probably just competition that separates them. I, I agree with you on the, the your Gabriel read because 
to me, he kind of represents the end. And I'm sure it's cyclical. It may come back. But the end of that phase on tour where people, they didn't want to lose while they were trying. You know, they were kind of like, oh, I'll go out and I'll surf my best. And if I win, lose, whatever. Like, I'm still getting paid. And when Gabriel won early uh, CT events and then won the title early, I think he kind of flirted with a, well, I want to be the good guy. I want to be the white knight. I want to be the, you know, the sheriff or whatever. And I think he played with that image wise. I think he played with that social media wise. And then I think eventually he just was like, but that's not who I am. And then when he kind of accepted, like, I'm not a, I'm not ashamed of competing. I'm not ashamed of being ruthless. That was so liberating for him and owning that it, to me, he felt like one of the first guys of his generation to be like, I'm not ashamed to try, which a lot of the other guys kind of seem like they were. I think it's I think it's gone now. But for a, a few years, I think people were kind of shocked. I think, yeah, I, I never I wasn't probably close enough to it in those years you're talking about. But I know a lot of guys who are, who are good friends of mine who were competing were had that opinion. Like it was mm. you were uncool if you tried. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was to me that is so far enough because I, I believe if you're there, you're there to, to win. You know, that's your job. That's your, your, your job. And I guess the generation I grew up in, a lot of the events we competed in, you wanted to win so bad because you wanted to get to the next event. You know, basically right. you had to win to, to get to the next event. Um, it wasn't like, you know, the money's a lot better now. And I think there was a period in surfing where a lot of those guys you're talking about, I think they were getting paid really well. So they didn't mm. have a sense of urgency. Um, and I think there was quite a few guys who were, incredible free surfers, incredible surfers, but they just didn't have a sense of urgency or a sense of desperation because they were getting paid so well. You know, they, they were great free surfers and that's what they were getting paid to do. Hmm. And, and it was, I think those guys made it uncool to try. Hmm. Um, but you see it, like everyone's trying their guts out now. You know, everyone yeah. wants to win. You know, it's, I think it's the guys now have got that attitude they're probably, they're probably closer and better friends than our generation was, but mm. it definitely looks like they all want to win and they'll all do whatever they have to do to win every day. You know, Newcastle, to me, showed that. They just, they're hungry. And that's, that's why they're passionate. You know, the claims they're doing and the passion they're showing when they're finishing waves tells me they're hungry. When, when you say they're better friends today than they were during your generation, was there tension outside the water when you were on tour? Um, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I think we all kept, you know, I think everyone had their rivalries. You know, I yeah. think when I was when I was training to when Potts won his world title, we'd cross each other training. We were always, we were bike riding, um, so he'd be going one way, I'd be going the other, and there was there was tension. Um, you know, me and Barton had a stand up fist fight in a bar in Spain um, one night. You know, there was a lot. There was a lot of tension. There was probably eight of us that were really, you know, basically all going for the same goal and we were all hungry and we all wanted it. We're all really good friends now. That's the funny part. And I think most of the time we left it in the water, but there was definitely tension. You know, there was people that you, you wanted to beat more than others. You know, I, I had a really good um, rivalry with Potts. We hated competing against each other. We hated each other, I think, when we competed. But uh, we're really good mates now. It's the same with Gary Elkerton. You know, like we had a really good rivalry, but we're really good mates now. 
you, you before we before we leave your your competitive days, I, I do want to talk about Bell's Beach because you talked about your ability to compete and your ability to figure things out. And in, in my good fortune of having been able to be on tour and, and travel to all these places, that seems to be illustrated the most at somewhere like Bell's Beach, where the place changes so much, there's so much weather, and, and you were not only a two-time winner of the Rip Curl Pro Bell's Beach in 88 and 93, but you finaled there an additional three times in 89, 91, and 97. Can you kind of break down your approach to surfing at Bell's Beach, what the venue meant to you? And, and if, I'm, if I'm on the mark or off the mark on saying that, yeah, it suited your ability to persevere and adapt and compete. It did. I think the first year I went to Bell's, I was 16. And I went down with Al Hunt. We stayed with all the Narrabeen guys, stayed with Simon. And Simon had won the event the year before. And the year I went down with Al and those guys, Tommy Carroll was in the final against MR. And I remember watching the final on the, on the rocks. And I think the common consensus was amongst the crowd and all, you know, there was Wayne Lynch and all those legends hanging out, was that it was really hard for goofy footers to win bells. And a lot of guys thought it was almost impossible. They thought it suited natural footers. And I remember competing there uh, the first time on a thruster, probably, it was probably 85. And that, I thought it was the best backhand wave I'd ever ridden. You know, it had that bowl that came round, it was fat. And for a goofy footer, you could come really square off the bottom. So you could get really tight in the, in the hook, right up in the pocket. And it just suited my surfing. And I, I always thought it suited all the goofy surfing. You know, I remember some of the best surfing I've seen there is by Tom Carroll and Oki. So I, I just always thought that no matter what, I've just felt really confident out there. Um, and I had a lot of, I'd been there a long time and had a lot of good friends. So I almost felt like it was a second home. You know, Rincon was a terrible backhand wave. I hated Rincon. But even on its day, I, and when it was good, I actually felt like that was a good backhand wave. Um, if, you, if I surfed there tomorrow, I would probably disagree with that. But I just remember always feeling at home. And I think Bell was always, it was quite consistent. You always got waves at low tide unless it was flat. And if you had a waiting period, you were almost guaranteed you were going to surf most of the event in the bowl. So I just felt comfortable there. And it was um, still probably, I think my boards really suited Bell's. You know, I rode boards that were a little bit longer than everyone else's. They had wider noses. I think my boards were like Medina's. You know, they were a little bit more raw. Mm. And I think those, those boards really suited Bell's. And, suited, and Bell suited my style. Did you did you work? Which shapers did you work with, sort of during your time on tour? And did you did you ever build your own boards? No, no. I I, I pretty much worked with Greg Clough from Aloha Surfboards. He was my shaper through ninety five percent of my career. And in the end, I started getting boards off different people and mm. experimenting and looking for the magic carpet. But yeah, pretty much he built all my really good Bell's boards. Um, and the year, my only claim to fame is when I think he was shaping my boards for four bells the year I won my first world title and he was shaping me board after board and I'd get the board, pick it up, just go, oh, something wrong with it, we need to tweak it. And I, I probably tweaked 20 boards and I felt really guilty and I used to actually go in the bay and shape and watch him shape my boards. I really enjoyed it. So I really understood my boards because of that. Um, and I remember he really had the shits one day because they just kept saying, can you take a little bit more off the tail? Take a little bit more off that rail. And it took, like, he probably shaped a board in an hour and a half. It was like three hours later and he's still <laughs> making minor adjustments. 
So he went out of the room. He had to get the, he, the phone rang and he went out of the room and I got the, the, surf, the surf phone and I started shaping the rails. <laughs> and when he came back, I just pretended like nothing happened. And that was the magic, that, that was the magic board that I ended up winning, I think, nine events on that, that one year. So um, that was my, that's my only claim to fame as a shaper. Shaped that's one other board. That's a pretty good one, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so and I always remind him of that. So, you know, tell him, yeah, we shaped that one together. That's right, that's right. So you said you you stayed on tour a couple of years longer than you think you maybe should have because the the makeup of the tour was changing in the sense of it was leaning more towards sort of these idyllic venues of Garagegon and, and Cloud Break and restaurants. What went into your decision to to retire from championship tour surfing? Well, I think there was, you know, I was, the year I retired, I was still in the top 10. I had a testimonial, I think, in 1998 with Barton. And the plan was we were both going both to retire at the same time and go into business together. So we went into business together. Barton, he was well and truly, he'd made up his mind he was finishing no matter what. Now I was on the fence. So we had this testimonial and I thought I'd just... I'll do the Australian leg, see how I went. So I did that. Um, one thing led to another, had a good start. So I ended up doing the tour that year. And then the next year was when they started going, um, Tabra was going to be on the, on the schedule. So I thought, I'm not going to quit this year. And then Tabra was on the schedule next year. Yes. So I went, so I waited for that. And then the, I had another good year on tour. And then I waited for the next year. I had young kids and I was, the first few years uh, I traveled with them, they were like, two and three, or one, two and three. And then once they got to like four and five, it just became really hard to travel with the young kids. So that was sort of weighing on my mind. I remember, again, surfing the Australian leg, doing well, surfed Tavarua, I think I lost to Oki, and then went to the OP Pro at Huntington. I think it was still the OP Pro. And I got there and I just could not get motivated. It was like two foot. It was in the 2000 year and Andy Irons was the next guy in line, he'd missed out by one spot the year before. So I had Andy, and I was on the fence. Everyone knew I was sort of undecided. And I had Andy's dad ringing me going, what are you doing? Are you going to quit? Andy wants your spot. Can you just let us know? I got there and I was just so on my, I just couldn't get motivated to surf small dribbly Huntington. So I rang, rang Andy's dad and said, yeah, I'm done. You can have my spot. So Andy got my spot and um, that, the rest was history with Andy. So I always look back and go, there was a bunch of things that led me to, to decide to retire. And if I had to put my finger on two of them, I'd say having kids, being mm-hmm. away from them, from them a lot, yeah. and just the, the lack of motivation to, surf, to want to surf crappy waves anymore. I think when you turn up anywhere and it's, you don't want to do your job, that's when you've got to give it up. Well, and I mean, it's, you can look back now and I guess it's a double-edged sword where you're like, I'm happy that I, I, I didn't get like bailed out off tour where I didn't requalify and I was struggling. Like you finished and you're in the top 10, but then at the same time, you still have to have the strength to be like, yeah, I know I'm still good enough to be here, but I'm, I'm stepping back. Yeah, and that's what it was like. And I always, you know, one of my childhood heroes was Shane Horan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to be able to get the opportunity to, to surf against him and compete with him and travel with him, you know, I thought he was, I still think he's one of the best surfers in history. And I remember when he was falling off the tour, he couldn't give it away. Like he really struggled to stop. And in the end, he, he, he you know, with all due respect to Shane, if you drew Shane in the heat in these last couple of years, it was almost like you felt like you had an easy heat. 
And I always thought, I don't want to go out like that. And I always thought, you, and it's a hard, really hard thing to do. It's hard to know when to finish and it's hard to know when to retire. And um, I look back and go, I was lucky I got out on top. I so could have done two or three more years and, and done what, did what Shane did and, and just you're there too long and you become, you become fodder for the young guys. Yeah. And, you know, that happened to a lot of people. Well, and, and for a lot of people, you know, whether they leave um, because of their own decision or they, they become fodder and they fail to requalify, it's still very, very hard um, to kind of leave the traveling life and to leave the circus, to leave what is sort of your tour family in a way. From a, from a career perspective and a financial perspective, were you pretty well set up when you decided to retire from competing? Did you have other kind of you know, uh, work avenues that you'd, you'd set up. You mentioned the, the, the business with Barton, but was there anything else that you were doing at the time? Um, I was, I was always in business in some form, mm. but when I'd retired, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't in a position in my life where I could retire and live on right. my earnings from, from pro surfing. You know, I'm still, I'm still working now. <laughs> I like, I, I, I'm a worker and I actually love working, but no, I, there's no way I could have, re- I, I had to get a job. So I always had interests in surf shops. I always had partnerships with other people while I was competing. Obviously, none of them made me enough money that I, I could retire. I, should, I never thought of opening a brewery, starting a, a beer company. Obviously, if I had a thought of that, things might have been different. But I pretty much, I finished on the tour, had a few opportunities, but every business opportunity I had, I had to create myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I became the distributor for Von Zipper Eyewear in Australia for a while. Sector nine skateboards, um, and I was in business with a couple of other people with that. I found the hardest thing when you finish competing is you don't know what to do because mm. um, you, you, all you know is competing and traveling and surfing. You know, I went, I did my high school certificate, didn't go to university. So, really, for me, I did, I, and I found it a really hard transition because you, you're finishing doing something you love and you're the center of attention and you get a lot of opportunities and you get a lot of adulation but when you finish competing wow you're in the real world and mm. it's a and i think for most surfers i think most of them really struggle with it you know i know all the guys from my generation i know a lot of them still struggle with it so you know i went from um, doing that to getting involved in retail you know everything i've done has been around surfing but mm. pretty much i'm in i'm in retail now i was lucky enough that rip curl sponsored me through my whole career um, and so they pretty much gave me some opportunities to work with them in their retail stores. And that's pretty much what I've done since I've finished competing, as well as um, you know, directing some of their events, um, working with the, the ASP prior to the WSL. Um, and that was pretty much it. So, yeah, so I'm a retailer, I guess, is the long and short of it. Well, it sounds like even if you'd uh, even if you'd started a, a Balter version back then and you'd sold it for God knows how much money those boys sold it for, it doesn't sound like you'd want to retire. You're a busy guy. You like you like doing stuff. You like being in the scene. I I do. You know, I still yeah you know, I'm I still enjoy surfing. I I still surf every day if I can. It's my main passion. You know, I still follow the sport. Keep in touch with what everyone's doing. And yeah, I'm not the sort of person that can do nothing. I'm, I need to keep busy. So I, you know, all my staff probably will tell you that I work way harder than what I should. But it's just that's just me. You know, I've just always been one of those people that's driven. I've got to. I've just got to look to the next thing. You, you mentioned 
the challenge in transitioning from being a competitive professional surfer to life and work and everything and how it, it's a pretty universal challenge for, for surfers. I've talked to a few people about this and, and I'm wondering if you have any ideas or suggestions. Looking back or even looking at the tour now, is there anything that the WSL should be doing to help prepare surfers for their post-competitive career? And by that, I mean, I had a conversation the other day of like, well, should we be should we be raising the junior age back up to 20? Should we be encouraging kids to kind of finish high school or to get their high school equivalency before they do the QS? Should we be providing uh, professional training or sort of secondary education on tour? Because when you kind of compare it to other sports, like, and I'll use um, sports in the U.S. as a reference point for myself, but like they kind of have a built-in experience system, right? Where it's like, if you're going to play in the NFL or the NBA, you're probably going to finish high school. You're probably going to go through the collegiate system because that's your sort of, and then you get to the pros. But as you said, in surfing, there's a lot of kids that are, you know, mid-teens, late teens that are like, I want to qualify now. And I don't know if that's the best thing, but I want to get your insights on it because you obviously qualified very young. I think the short answer is no. I don't think the WSL should be providing extra education. I think, I think it's really up to the individual what they want want to do. You know, I think everyone's been brought up differently. Everyone's got different opportunities. Like I think most of the sporting organisations in Australia, they offer they offer extra counselling and guidance, and you know, I guess training on how to deal with media and things like that Mm. but at the end of the day it's really up to the kids whether they absorb it whether they want it whether they get anything out of it you know i'd encourage i think it's really up to the kids i think we really need i think we really need to encourage kids to think about the big picture rather than just the small world of professional surfing Mm. you know i think it's such a small part of your life in the big scheme of things that I, i i every kid i speak to i really encourage them to finish school you know, I think if you finish school, at least it gives you the opportunity to do other things, you know, go to university later in life or study or broaden your horizons doing whatever whatever else you want to do. But at the end of the day, you can't force anyone to do anything extra. I think you've just got to um, encourage people to, to spend a bit more time in school, you know, and I know a lot of kids are getting homeschooled now, um, you know, some successfully, some unsuccessfully. But I think the, the one, one thing I think we've got to encourage kids to do is um, just have a broader horizon, broader perspective on what they want to do. You know, and when you're 16, sure, you want to travel the world and surf good waves, but you can still do that and finish school. Um, so I think the WSL should encourage people to do other stuff and, and, and better themselves, but I don't think we can make them. I think it's a pretty good answer. We uh, we did put a call out to the Instagram community to see if they had any questions for you, and we picked a couple. Okay. The first one is from, I think it's I am Matson. Who was the hardest person you had to surf heats against while you competed? Well, the the two hardest people were Barton Lynch and Martin Potter. Martin Potter just because he was so aggressive. You know, he was the sort of guy that you'd paddle out against and he'd hate you. He wanted to beat, he wanted to beat you. He wanted to humiliate you. So there was, you knew exactly what you were going to get with Potts. He'd growl at you, spit at you, wrestle you, he'd do whatever he had to do. So you just knew every time you paddled out against him, he was going to give it to you. He was hard for that reason. Barton, it was just such a good competitor. 
Um, and I guess Barton took me under his wing and he, he actually probably taught me a lot of the stuff that I knew the first few years I was on tour. So we always had a good rivalry because he felt I should have been more appreciative of what he taught me and I felt, no, you didn't teach me anything. So, um, so yeah, I'd say those two guys were definitely the hardest. I like that one. All right, uh, Natan underscore Day asks, do you think Carissa Moore's sensational air will push other women on tour to attempt similar maneuvers? I think all, I think all the girls are attempting those maneuvers. I think they have been for a while, and I think, um, I think it's, they're going to take it to the next level. And, you know, you look at um, Josh Kerr's daughter, Sierra, and Aaron Brooks, like what are that? They're sort of what twelve, thirteen, fourteen oh, years old. Yeah, early teens. Yeah, early teens. They they're just going to the next level. So I actually believe that that generation is going to be the generation that basically is you know they're surfing as good as the boys of the same age. They're just yeah. probably surfing better. So I actually think those young girls are going to be the ones that are really going to bridge the gap, and and that will be the leveler. Like I think yeah. that's when. Guys and girls will be competing on the same level. And, you know, it's probably four years away. But the girls, yeah, what the girls are doing now, they're all doing it. You know, like Sally's doing, they're all doing airs. So it's just they, they're not making them as often in competition so you don't see them all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, the third uh, question, celebrity question from Jess Miley Dyer. She's... Um, <laughs> She's making calls in Newcastle and then writing in for the podcast questions. It's good. But I like this question. Tell us about a time that Renato Hickel ripped you off as head judge. Oh, that's, I can't, can't I think every head judge rips you off at some point. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't actually remember a time when Renato ripped me off. I'm sure there was a, uh, there was a time maybe I stormed the tower and gave him a, gave him a, a gobful. I'm not sure. But uh, <laughs> I actually can't remember one specific time where I could pinpoint. Well, so we all, yeah, we, we always say that um, yeah, judging at, at surfing is like the least appreciated job on the planet because every surfer hates you by the end of the event. Well, actually, at the end of every event, only one surfer thinks the scoring was okay, but even they probably thought they got underscored too. So it's yeah. Like, oh, it's, it's a thankless job. Yeah. Uh, well, those are the Instagram questions. And we do have one final segment. This is uh, the lightning round. So it's 10 questions and uh, answer as quickly as you can. Okay. If you could only have one board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless, which would you choose? I, I'm conservative. I definitely choose a thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read? Last book I read was I am reading an autobiography on Gail Kelly, who was the uh, CEO of one of the big Australian banks, uh, Westpac. Um, so that's I finished that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, best surf film ever. Uh, best surf film ever. More, uh, definitely Morning of the Earth. One wave you never have to go back to. Uh, Choku, without a doubt. <laughs> No, Chopu, it's under six feet's fun. Any bigger than that, so uh, I'm happy not to go back there. <laughs> Only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life. Well, that's a good question. I'd say restaurants at uh, Tavarua. Best person to share the lineup with? Best person to share the lineup with? 
Uh, I'd have to say one of my mates from Narrabeen, a guy named Craig Stephan, uh, better known as Tuki. Uh, we've travelled together uh, to Indo and a lot of places when we were really young, and he's always good value. Worst person to share a lineup with? Uh, probably Tom Carroll. He's just such a frother. You know, you look, he just paddles straight back out, looks at the next wave and goes, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? You going? You going? So Tom was always, and then he, if there was two of you in the lineup, he'd probably still go anyway. So he couldn't help himself. <laughs> All right. Last one. Finish this sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by? Um, going surfing again this afternoon after I've finished with the podcast because I think the waves are going to be uh, looking out the back door and it looks like it's offshore still and four to six foot and pretty good. All right. Well, save some of those waves for this week when uh, the CT comes to town. And Damien Hardman, thank you so much for coming on the lineup. We really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. So that's it. That's the lineups conversation with Damien Hardman. I hope you enjoyed it. WSL Championship Tour stop number three, the Rip Curl Narrabeen Classic presented by Corona, commences on April 16th and will be streamed live at worldsurfleague.com, our linear television partners, and the WSL app. Don't miss it. This episode is produced by Ryan Fawcett with art direction by Jason Penning. Thanks to both of them and thanks to our sponsors. We appreciate their support. The lineup acknowledges that it is recorded and produced on the ancestral lands of the Chumash, the Kishivagnar, and the Gurungai Aboriginal people. I hope you safely get some waves wherever you are, and we'll see you next Tuesday. WSLstore.com is powered by Shopify. We love the analytics we can check on the go. A lot of us are addicted to checking the Shopify app on our phones. We also love the automations and marketing integrations with our social and YouTube channels. It has incredible features to help us manage our global audience, including international taxation support and great shipping optionality. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US, and Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lineup, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lineup now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash lineup.